Kia ora koutou, welcome to the panel RNZ National with us this afternoon. We have, for the first time on the panel, Emma John. Uh, we also have Sam Johnson. Uh, quite a bit of response regarding cell phones in schools, actually. It's something that we are going to have to come back to, uh, I think, this week. Uh, Andrew says, we took our daughter out of her school when the administration would not change their cell phone policy. Another 30 parents decided the same thing, and now they have changed their rules as well. It's too late for us. So uh, thank you for all your responses regarding that, and they just keep on coming. Uh, we'll try and read out some more feedback uh, in the programme. But first, we cross to New South Wales, which has been hit by flooding of, well, I guess you could say biblical proportions. Sydney is enduring its wettest start to the year since records began in 1859. As the Sydney Morning Herald puts it, we've had fires, we've had pestilence, we've had mice, we've had floods. What on earth is coming for us next? Today, Prime Minister Scott Morrison signalled that he will declare a national emergency in response to the flooding. I think it's the first time that a national emergency has been triggered in Australia. With us is ABC journalist Gavin Coote to share the latest. Gavin, welcome. Uh, Good afternoon. Good to be with you. Good to be with you. You're in Sydney now, I understand. Paint us the picture, because what I've been seeing in terms of images and video, the flooding is extraordinary. I think you've summed it up really well. We've had, you know, fires, pestilence, and now floods. And, and this, is not, this is not, you know, um, our first flood uh, in, in such a short period. We, we had floods of, of, you know, similar proportions last year on the outskirts of Sydney, um, but this has now exceeded that. And then when you look at further north around Lismore, you know, sort of northern New South Wales, you're talking about major population centres that, um, you know, while it's a week ago now that those floods went through, they are still in the process of getting a handle of the devastation. But, yes, yeah, certainly it's, it's still a bit of a live event here in Sydney. Um, we've got heavily populated parts of the outskirts of Sydney, you know, bridges that were built to withstand floods, brand-new bridges. They're underwater at the moment. Um, and thousands of people were told to evacuate in the dead of night last night. So they are at evacuation centres or with family members, really in the dark about what kind of condition their home is in. But I've spoken to a few and they were saying it certainly uh, entered the floor level of their homes. So it's, it's just a really devastating situation all around. We have a panel with us. They might jump, jump with a question, Gavin. But from what you've seen, how extreme is uh, the flooding? I see one, you, uh, you uh, took a picture of Mal Steers, home in Windsor, flooded for a second time in less than a year. They said, look, my partner and I, we're done. We love the Hawkesbury so much, but we can't live here anymore. Yeah, and I think that captures that. They're really on the front line of, of, you know, a changing climate. They've been living on a floodplain for some time. And, of course, some of these people have actually moved out there for the lifestyle or it's a bit cheaper. But they're on a floodplain. That floodplain is becoming ever more volatile when we're talking about one in 100-year flood events, which, you know, planners used to always talk about. Well, that that really doesn't have much meaning anymore when these kind of events are happening every year now. So, yeah, look like Mel, people are looking at packing up. Um, the question is, is uh, who is going to move in? Or, you know, if you sell that house, who's yeah. going to buy it? And where are you going to move to? Oh, dear. All questions that need to be answered by the government too. Um, Emma, uh, let's bring in. Emma, do you have a family in New South Wales? Friends? I don't, but mm-hmm. I was just thinking about how incredibly devastating that must be. And... Um, that decision to go, right, I mean, we're out of here, are we? Are we going to leave? You know, are we going to leave for good? And what that would look like in terms of loss of um, value of properties and all of that sort of thing, it just sounds like an absolute 
nightmare. Yeah, stay there, Gavin. Let's bring Sam in. And Sam, you would have, uh, uh, well, you're not, you're, you're pretty well used to seeing uh, uh, emergencies, uh, extraordinary emergencies, your organisation, the Student Volunteer Army, born out of it. Yeah, and I think we, it's, um, we, we, we've seen the sort of community responses in Australia, as you always see after floods and things, which is amazing to see the Mud Army, which is an, a, a very famous right. example, helping with the cleanups. But Gavin, I mean, it, it does uh, raise the, the big, big questions, which are really hard politically and otherwise to deal with about where we build our houses and do you rebuild in the same mm. places and where people live? Um, what are you sensing from the, the political response so far um, and what the community is saying? Well, it's, it's really sharpened in the last week or so because the head of the, um, this disaster commission that's been set up by the federal government, the hand-picked chairman by the Prime Minister, this chairman was saying that people need to stop living on floodplains. Now, it, it's a little bit of a difficult one because state governments are releasing new land lots on places like this and essentially allowing people to live in, in places like this um, and, you know, basically looking to build more dams upstream which have their own environmental impacts. So it's a very complex one. And um, at the other mm. end, you've got people, you know, they're incentivising people to perhaps, you know, move further away. They're looking at stamp duty exemptions. If you're looking at buying a new home further up, up you know, elevation-wise, the question is who is going to buy that home? Um, mm. You know, where, where is that housing stock? And where are you moving to? Because, you know, um, as you would well know, the bushfire risk, you know, uh, that's, that's also ever looming. And, um, you know, you might be out of a floodplain, but you might be closer to the bush or you might be, uh, you know, in the eye of potentially, um, you know, riverine uh, issues or, or coastal issues. So I think it's, it's almost as though um, people that have lived in what we have thought of as, as being risky places that's just becoming ever more broad now. And um, we're seeing that play out in these places that, you know, they're used to floods, but they haven't seen floods quite like this in their lifetime. So finally, Gavin, before you go, uh, two words. We're seeing up front in your face, climate change. I think that's fair to say. I think that's fair to say. Uh, we're seeing that and it's, if black summer bushfires, uh, the, the 2020 or sorry, 2019, 2020, um, bushfires weren't enough to, to really bring that into focus. I think these floods have for a lot of people, and I think we can expect to see this um, yet in the spotlight in the federal election. All right, ABC journalist Gavin Coote there, uh, live from uh, New South Wales, Sydney, and uh, it's just on the back of the uh, news this afternoon that uh, the Prime Minister has uh, signaled he'll declare a national emergency in response to this really quite uh, incredible flooding, the wettest start, to, to the year since records began mm-hmm. in 1959, that's Sydney. So, uh, wishing all uh, people well over there. What do you what, you were saying something, Emma? Wallace, yeah, sorry, uh, Sam. Uh, you know, I was just going to say, uh, Wallace. I mean, it really there's a question of climate change, absolutely, and there's a big question on where we continue to build houses, and that mm. was the problem. Um, you know, I remember when, I, when we, my family first moved to Christchurch. Um, with my with my mum when I was eleven or ten or eleven, and my granddad. I remember my late granddad saying uh, to her, "Don't." buy a house on the eastern side of Christchurch because right. of the potential liquefaction risk. And we didn't even know what the word was or, or earthquake, but it was known, and, and, and you know, Tahu know that very well. Mm. Yet, yet we build houses there and we build houses on flood, floodplains, um, and sadly they are cheaper, which means people who, um, who you're most likely to buy it, um, and including social housing, sometimes it's in the wrong area and actually really sets people up for intergenerational disadvantage, and, and it's, it's really troubling to deal with. Mm. 
15 past for the panel. To this, as the Omicron surge continues, schools are feeling the strain as more staff uh, self-isolate. And even with the built-in contingency plans, which outlines who is remote learning and what would trigger uh, a staffing shortage, the squeeze is still really being felt. Uh, Old Orpie's school principal, Andrew King, says his staff are exhausted. And Andrew is with me from the Bay of Plenty. Andrew, kia ora. Kia ora, Wallace. Tell us briefly about your school. Whereabouts are you? How many students? Okay, Oropi School is just on the outskirts of Tauranga Township itself. We've got 350 students here, one to eight. And I understand that your reliever pool is drying up rapidly. Yeah, we basically don't have any more relievers available just because of the demand across the whole Tauranga region and also we've got a couple in our school um, as we've got 13 staff um, off-site isolating all with covid so you mentioned that you know you look back at lockdown and you're thinking, goodness me, uh, life might have been easier in lockdown than now. You really mean that? Yeah, I do. Um, I was actually reflecting on it with a colleague this afternoon. The um, in lockdown, it's pretty black and white about what's mm. happening, and it's pretty much online learning. Uh, but we're in a very hybrid mode at the moment. But it's a hybrid mode that's changing every day. Yeah. All right, Emma. Some thoughts, questions on this issue? Um, I mean, I feel for the position that you're in, but I have to say lockdown was in home um, remote learning for my three kids. It was just awful. It was just the worst. It was so, and, and, and there was so much, there was just so much kind of bad stuff that went along with it. Um, I'm just so glad to have them back at school hmm. in whatever uh, form that takes. And I, I do hear everything you're saying about staffing and it must be really challenging to have to flex in these times. But, um, mm. God, the alternative is even even saying lockdown and, and online learning is triggering for me, mm. really. I mean, it was just awful. And I think that awful for the children as well. I mean, one of my mm. boys, he... Um, I just think he really suffered, you know, during that time. I mean, everybody did, I know, in their own way, but but he's only just now getting back into the swing of school and he went from being a really happy guy to being a reclusive sort of guy and not wanting to leave the house and all of that kind of thing. So I just think it's so wonderful that they can be at school and, mm. you know, whatever people can do to help and I don't know what that would be, then mm. then we've, we've got to do it, you Andrew? know. Um, Andrew? I, 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 yes, I hear you on that and I couldn't agree with you more. Um, at school learning is certainly the priority and it needs to be because um, at at the end of the day our business is kids and educating kids so we need to do what we can to keep as many of them at school as possible um, because I hear you. All right, Sam. The problem with, oh sorry. Oh sorry, uh, keep keep going uh, Andrew, sorry about that. Sorry, just the problem with the current context, I guess, is it's ever-changing. You've got different dynamics. You've got different staff on leave or or not at school. You're Mm -hmm. having to mix classes up. You're having to have different groupings of children. That changes every day, which is quite hard to manage. Yeah, Sam? Mm. Andrew, thank you for what you're doing and all teachers around New Zealand because it is so hard. Uh, But my question is um, around what you said uh, of of sort of split teaching half online, half in the class and that type of thing. And I was talking about this with some um, colleagues at um, University of Canterbury actually earlier today. And they were saying the same thing. It's really hard to do. It's easy to do everything online 
or everything in person, but doing a half-half is really hard. So maybe do we need to make a much better distinction there and actually do, look, it's an all online or all in class, but and that maybe will just not work for the school context too, so I don't know, but thank well, you. Well, uh, it's an interesting point because um, actually it's different for every school depending on, it depends on mm. who are the staff left that you've actually got at school and who are the staff yes. you've got at home on any given day. And then each school's got quite different needs. You know, your communities are quite different. So I understand the need to be hybrid, uh, but really at the moment we don't have the resourcing to give it the justice it needs um, to do that well. Uh, so mm. we have had to close off our two new entrance classes because of that issue. We just couldn't do it properly. And it's harder yeah. the younger the children too. Either way, isn't it? That's right. Because oh, I was going to say, younger, uh, yeah. Sorry, for the younger children, um, it was that balance of what's better for them at school learning. Mm. However, if they're at mm. school learning with a different reliever every day or having to be mm. put in the year two and three class, then is that worse for their well-being or at home worse for their well-being? I must admit, Andrew, yeah. you said um, at the start that uh, your, your staff are exhausted. Uh, and can I just say, you you sound tired. Yes, yep, most definitely, because all your life is dealing with Omicron and, um, and the response to that, but our specialty is teaching and learning and leading that, which is all the fun, exciting stuff that motivates you about the job. Mm. Well, it's an administrative well, the, the, we have got ourselves into a tricky position here because we've done so well with our COVID response, right? But but the, the sort of other side of that is now there's so many of us, myself included, are quite scared of the of the virus, um, even if we are triple triple vaccinated. When if you're triple vaccinated, it is presenting as a as a as a you know a severe cold. Um, but it, so it's we're, we're sort of in that halfway house at the moment where we can't quite treat it like a normal flu and be managed by a flu because we because it's covid um, but we but we're, we're not quite we're not quite in a full lockdown either so i think that you have there's a lot of empathy around the, the problems many organizations face at the moment yeah well uh, andrew kia ora, uh, for your time and uh, go well and i uh, appreciate you you being on the panel no problem. Thank you. Uh, there's Auto School Principal Andrew King uh, on the program. 21 past for the panel uh, NZ National. We are with Emma John this afternoon and Sam Johnson. A lot of, by the way, just as a side note, a lot of uh, uh, emails coming through about um, peeling potatoes. Uh, and there's quite a debate <laughs> going on online in my in- inbox. <laughs> about that. Uh, if we have time, we'll come back to that because the uh, debate still hasn't been answered. What is better, peeling your potatoes or not? And does it matter if they're baby potatoes or is there a rule? Do you like your creamy mash unpeeled, all that sort of stuff. Uh, got to revisit that at some stage. But this really uh, opened my eyes. The squeeze might be on for many sectors, ever tightening, but oh, the banking sector, whoo, just fine. Banks operating in Aotearoa made more than $6 billion in 2021, despite operating in a year of global pandemic, according to a report by KPMG. The Financial Institutions Performance Survey of banks found net profits rose nearly 48% last year to hit $6.13 billion. It was the first time it had gone over the $6 billion mark since that report began monitoring the sector. So to discuss this is Associate Professor Claire Matthews, Financial Services Researcher at Massey University. Claire, nice to have you on. Good afternoon, Wallace. Well, someone's making money and it's the banks. Are we surprised? Um, well, yes, we are surprised to an extent. 
But when you actually look into the details of why they made their profit, uh, oh, such a big profit last year, it reflects the fact that they had made an allowance the previous year for the problems that they expected that didn't actually eventuate. So a substantial portion of the profit for 2021 was actually a write-back of the impairment expense that they'd had the previous year. Oh, so a bit of a write-back goes on. But uh, nonetheless, nonetheless, you can see why the optics might, mightn't be so good when you, on one end you've got a $14 cauliflower and at the other end you've got mainly Australian-owned banks uh, posting a multi-billion dollar profit. Oh, absolutely. The optics are never good when the banks make a profit, although we do want them to make a profit. It's just the size of the profit that tends to be a bit of a concern. Mm, the size of the profit. All right, Emma. It's eye-watering amount, isn't it? Um, I don't know. I mean, giving out free money for mortgages has then pushed up house prices and sort of the price of everything now, including your cauliflower. $14, did you say? Where are you getting that from? Is that Faro? <laughs> No, $14. Emma. No, no, no. It is $14. Yeah, Apparently $6 in counts in Dunedin, but $14 in some places. Absolutely. Blimey. Yep. Uh, so now they're edging interest rates up, which will put pressure on first-home buyers even more. And I guess the question is, have banks' practices over the last couple of years been reckless and what measures are being taken by the government to regulate them? Um, it seems, I mean, I know they're, a lot of them are owned by Australian banks, but it seems like the New Zealand versions of them are kind of self-regulating. They're not, is there a regu- regulatory body uh, looking into all of this big profiteering? Claire? Um, there's been a lot of interest in the uh, bank's profitability for a long time, and there have been uh, various inquiries into the profits that they make and how the banks operate. And so, uh, this one, I think, about 2019, there was an agreement where they uh, ran some pilots for banking hubs in certain communities where they had lost all their bank branches, and that then got uh, interrupted by COVID, so that hasn't worked out quite so well, and they're still working on those. But they've had some contribution to improving things. Um but I don't think you can say that the New Zealand banks are really any different. They're caught up in this profitability as well. Um, their dollar value will be less because they're smaller, but they're still making it at, at similar rates, perhaps not quite as high, but they are still doing well. Um, and while interest rates are going to go up, the banks aren't just saying, oh, well, we'll put interest rates up because we feel like it. It reflects the, the economic situation the cost of funds that they're going to have to be paying, uh, and it reflects the uh, inflationary environment that we're now in, unfortunately. All right, Sam. Uh, I, I think people wouldn't be so upset at the amount of money that the banks were making if the service matched that, that, that level. Uh, we are way far behind, and you'll be much more an expert in this, Claire, than me, but uh, we're far behind in New Zealand in e-money and, and fintech actually make the banks customer friendly. I mean, banking is still like dealing with something out of the 90s. You have to get these big, long contracts. They're very unfriendly. The technology is average at best. The customer service is average at best wherever you go. So I'd prefer they invested a lot more money in actually making their service a lot better. And then I don't care how much money they make, so long as the services uh, are actually good. And yes, there's investment going in it, but we're far behind um, the likes of Singapore Mm. in terms of our banking infrastructure. Your thoughts on that, Claire? 
So I know there's a lot of criticism of the banks in terms of their customer service, and it does come down to the specific person that you tend to be dealing with at the branch. Um, I have to say that I've had more dealings with branches or branch staff in the last few months than I have done previously, and it is very variable because it depends on the individual. And I've had somebody that I would really, really criticise, and then I've had somebody that has been absolutely fabulous. So it, it comes down to that individual. But at the but same the people, time, the, I agree yeah. that the banks could be doing more around customer service, making things easier. Um, they tend to be somewhat officious and not trying to see how they can help their customers. It's just these mm. are the rules and that's what we have to do. Well, that, well that's right. But I think more, that I actually feel sorry for a lot of people working in customer service and banks because the technology they use is, is just not up to what it could be. I think we've underinvested in it. And you can send, we're looking at different products at the moment to easily send money by a text message to some of our volunteers to reimburse them. But the, the, you know, the compliance is only just getting there, whether if we were in, in Singapore, we'd, we could do it instantly and millions of people use it, or even in Indonesia. Uh, there's just so okay. much, we're just so far behind in terms of the technology to transfer money quickly and easily to people to make their lives easier. We use a very outdated system. Okay, very interesting discussion. Professor Claire Matthews, kia ora. Thanks for being with us on, on the topic. Uh, Claire is a financial services researcher at uh, Massey University. Some, some of your thoughts coming through, uh, Wallace. Um, uh, of course, this is not the season for collies, so of course they're more expensive at this time of year. We've become used to things that being available when we ever want them, but common sense housekeeping should always be practised, said Marie. Although someone says $4.99 collie in Picton, on the small side, though. Uh, and Simone says, oh, my goodness, it is so validating to hear your panellists say the words lockdown and homeschooling are triggering. I'm only just recovering from it now. Teachers are Great. heroes. Teachers are heroes and deserve to be paid accordingly. Uh, Emma, was it that bad? Yes, it was worse. It was a nightmare every single day i honestly think it like no like no joke i definitely think it made me depressed you know it just it, it, just so tough on families it was awful really and the, 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 the idea of there not being any end in sight um just so many worries it was and it would sort of catch you off guard you know you'd have some days wouldn't you mm. where you'd sort of feel oh yeah so it's okay i'll go for a walk i'll walk the dog and then um forgive me yeah, you're auckland based you you're auckland based right forgive me i am yeah yeah no <laughs> i am yeah. too it was, uh but I, no i was so, in so, agree yeah okay so we're all so what is it 12 weeks uh it must have been well must have been what are we saying relentless <laughs> I, i'm just i'm just actually maybe i blocked it out it was relentless wasn't it Relentless. I think the hard part is that there was yes. no there was no end in sight, and if they had just no. said, "Well, look, we're working towards this goal, and we're, we're, you know, we're we're aiming to open up the world in six months' time, and let's work backwards from there and put some milestones in the sand," but there was just nothing, so you knew nothing to go on. Even working in Omicron response world with the Ministry of Health, you had no we had no information about what's coming uh, down the pipeline. Mm. Very interesting. Okay. Homeschooling, yeah. yeah. Emma, homeschooling, so you wake up in the morning, you open the oh, laptop gosh. to get them ready, and you're, just, you're, facing, you're facing down the yeah. barrel of uh, another... And just, I'm having to learn, but then suddenly, Wallace, I'm having to learn how to do, I don't know, some type of graph on my son's... Um, <laughs> 
oh, MacBook, oh, not MacBook, Chromebook. And, you know, and, oh, you know I'm all sweetie. I'm stressed out trying to figure that out. And then they don't want to be there. I don't want to be, the teacher doesn't want to be, none of us want to be there. Like, what are we all doing, <laughs> you know? So towards the end, honestly, it was just a lot of screen time, I have to admit. I'm going to admit that. And not a lot of homeschooling. Okay. okay. You're on the panel. Uh, it's at National Sam Johnson and Emma John with me this afternoon. Lots to come.